Well, they're going to Ryza again. But it's okay, because instead of going to Ryza, what they get is uh, nearly dying of heat stroke in the desert. I mean, that's just as good, really, right? I mean, by the end there, your brain's probably generating a whole bunch of things to completely distract you from how terrible it is as you're dying, so, you know, you get to enjoy a few seconds of it. It's good, it's good. Uh, um, <clears throat> decided to look into it. They mentioned that it's 41 degrees, which I guess is pretty hot. I wouldn't know, so I decided to look into it. That is 105.8 degrees Fahrenheit. What's funny is, and this is not a joke, my mother, I, she and I were talking about the weather because she's getting hit by a heat wave right now. So where it is where she is right now in real life, it is 115 degrees Fahrenheit. Yikes. Puts things into a little bit of perspective. <laughs> oh, this freaking world. Um, so, <clears throat> so we got this. We're going to rise. Everything's going to be awesome. But then, as he's packing, he's packing a bag that says North American Regionals 2134. Just more evidence to the idea that he was part of a water polo team. I just wanted to mention it. There, That's it. There was someone in the Admiralty who was into water polo, and... You know, his dad. That's why he's a captain. It all makes sense. So then Clancy Brown shows up. And he's, um, awesome. I like Clancy Brown in general. Uh, he, I mean, I probably don't have to explain myself on that one. But he does manage a nice balance of being, uh, you know, strong and proud and a good leader, but affable and charming and charismatic at the same time. He comes across as a decent guy, and you do actually root for him. He is also portrayed as the good guy, to use the generic term. The only thing he really does wrong in the whole episode, not counting things we'll get into in a minute, is he lies to the crew to get them to show up. That's it. And I just find that interesting that they took that tact with it. So, Zabral uh, invites them. And, you know, Archer decides to take along Tucker. Poor Tucker. And they sit, and they're enjoying dinner. Everything's cool. He mentions that their planet is two-thirds water. That is to say, our planet, where we're at right now, watching this. Except for those of you in about five years from now, where you'll be watching this from the various stations and ships I have stationed around this planet. But the point is, roughly now-ish, you're probably on the planet being referenced. You might be in orbit of it. I guess that still counts. There's a bit of a reference to Silent Enemy. But he also specifically asks about the Sulaban. That's a nice little touch. So then they go out to play Gascana. Yeah, yeah, no, that's pretty good. I, it looks like a legitimately fun game to play, really. If not for my own heat issues, I probably would enjoy playing it too. Uh, and also if I was, you know, willing to be seen without a shirt on, which I am not, by any means or stretch of the imagination. No thank you. <clears throat> this is when I have to comment on the directing. Usually when I comment on the directing, it's to praise it, the way they pull emotion out of characters, or they do good transitions, or maybe they have good camera angles, or good flow or motion, or whatever. But the directing in this episode was... weird. Weird shots, weird camera angles, weird usage of... of everything. I don't know how to describe it. The way he uses the camera was bizarre. I looked up the guy who did it. Uh, David Straton? 
I've never heard of him before. It turns out this is the first episode of Star Trek he's ever directed. He will go on to direct uh, almost a dozen other episodes of Enterprise after this, but this is his first entry. <sighs> weird. Anyways, um, let's skip over the main, the, 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 the B plot for just a second. Let's fast forward a little bit. So, they're out in the desert now, trying to escape, because, you know, the place was attacked by the locals, and they have to do a 30-kilometer trek in the desert. Ouch. That does not sound fun. I mentioned my heat issues earlier. For those of you not aware, I have heat issues, heat tolerance issues. Um, you know, everyone has their range where they're where they function properly. Mine's substantially lower on the field. 50 degrees in Fahrenheit, whatever that is in Celsius, uh, that's about where I'm actually comfortable. Getting up to about 70 is tolerable. Anything above 70 and it starts to get uncomfortable. By the time you get to the 90s, I start to have trouble functioning. Now, I have worked in superheat before. I, my, my family lives in Nevada, for God's sakes. And, uh, well, I have done work in the heat before. Uh, last year, actually. I actually suffered a bit of heat stroke from it. My sister wanted to take me to the hospital. Now, I just needed to rehydrate properly, which I know how to do. Because you don't just drink water. That's a terrible idea. That's just going to involve throwing up. Um, but, you know, I managed to settle myself. I managed to get a few bits of bread. I managed to drink some seltzer water, the carbonation helping. And that managed to settle me down to the point where I could start intaking water again, and I was fine. But I only point that out because it's sure a good thing that Archer isn't heat intolerant, because it looks like Tucker is. Which, I mean, I'm kind of down for that. Not the Tucker specifically, but the fact that one of them is and one of them isn't heat intolerant, or tolerant, or however you want to think of that. Because now you all of a sudden have a problem where one of them is barely managing and the other isn't managing at all. It gets to the point relatively quickly where Archer is effectively dragging him, and Tucker is actually suffering from some of the more unpleasant side effects, such as feeling cold or legitimate delusions. So that's neat. So they talk about, so they talk about survival training, and uh, it's a neat bit, but I find myself wondering... Does survival training involve talking a lot and breathing through your mouths a bunch when you're out in the desert? I don't know. Maybe, maybe it's not. I, I, I could be wrong about that. <laughs> I know, I know. It would have just been a silent scene otherwise, but it's just something to comment on. So, the Tarothans, we don't actually know if they would be a match for Enterprise. Call, let's call this one a wash. I've been kind of pointing out how sometimes they meet aliens who are weaker, and sometimes they meet aliens who are stronger. We don't really know where these guys lie, because they don't actually fight them. Which is actually interesting. You'd think they would be willing to do so, but they seem to not even consider the possibility of actual armed interaction. Usually that's because they're outgunned. They can't. But here, T'Pol makes the conscious decision not to interact in the local conflict, and thereby in order to not actually be a part of things and not have the guns pointed at them. Just just food for thought, because it makes me wonder. Anywho. So Tucker's cold. As I already mentioned, that's bad. And they boil the water to drink, which is actually a kind of a neat idea in its own right. I don't know how much that gets rid of. I, I don't remember. Anybody who's more up-to-date on their survival training, feel free. I used to do survival training. It's just been a really long time. There's also the uh, filtering water through your clothing thing, too, which I'm not sure they bothered trying to do. Either way, 
That then leads to an interesting scene. It starts at 33 minutes and 48 seconds. I want to praise this scene. I want to say, yes, this scene's awesome, because it has all of the hallmarks of some of my favorite scenes in Trek. You get two people in a room, and you have them talk to each other and act off of each other. And to be blunt, in my opinion, most of the really, really good scenes, the absolute top-tier, cream of the crop, above and beyond everything else scenes across all of Star Trek and every show are about two people acting off each other in a room. Even Babylon 5, I think that. This should have been that. It is not. O'Connor Tremere, he, he's doing the best, Tremere, he's doing the best he can, and he does a great job and basically carries the scene, but once again, I, feel, I don't feel the chemistry between the two, and Bacula just is not selling it for me. I swear I don't have anything against the guy. I really don't. It's just, I'm not buying his performance. Maybe that's down to the director, who's brand new to the franchise. Maybe that's down to the writers, who had no idea what they were doing at this point. As I've started to discover, by about the end of season one, the writing staff were, um, panicking. I have theories about why. Let's save those for season two, because that's when it really comes forward. What's really noteworthy about this scene is actually a fully technical thing. There's something that's called a continuous shot. There's also fake continuous shots, which are also hard to do, but nevertheless can be an artistic choice. A continuous shot is exactly what it sounds like. The camera rolls for a long period of time and doesn't stop until the shot's over. It's much harder to do, much easier to screw up, but it, that's part of the appeal of it, is that it's a harder thing to accomplish. I also happen to really love continuous shots, personally. Huge fan, it's the kind of thing I would like to use you know, at least once per episode if I were a director, or once per movie if I was a director. So, I do appreciate this. It's 3 minutes and 41 seconds. This is, to my knowledge, the single longest contiguous shot in all of Star Trek. It's an interesting one scene to pick for it, but, you know, whatever, whatever. We'll, we'll go with it, we'll go with it. <sighs> Part of the thing that fails for me here is that, that Archer pulls another Janeway. You need to take a drink, and you need to talk with me about the engines, and you need to keep awake. That's an order. As if that's an order is just a magic spell that you can cast in order to ensure that people do what you tell them to do. This has always irritated me, but this is probably, I think, the second worst example of this I've ever seen. Trip is actually having heat stroke. He is fully delusionary at this point. He's barely capable of being cognitive. That's an order isn't going to do jack here. You're probably wondering, what's the worst time? Janeway to Tuvok while Tuvok was slowly giving in to the Borg after being assimilated. That's how bad you have to be to be worse than this. Anyways, then they rescued the end. Now, let me check my timer. We've only been talking about this for... About ten minutes, something like that. It's because well, there's not much to talk about, is there? It's a big, long trek against the desert. They barely survive. They don't do anything with it. Nothing interesting happens. It's just a big, long trek against the desert, and then they are rescued. That's it. There's nothing revealed about them, or their connection to each other, their friendship, their backstory... Them as an individual, they don't change as characters. Nothing is done whatsoever here. There's no setting building or world building or setting building or 
<laughs> I swear I meant three separate things there. Nothing happens. So it's it's just there for the sake of it. It's technically impressive, but it has no meat on the bone, right? So there's nothing for me to talk about. The reason I'm pausing to mention this is because it takes up a majority of the episode's actual runtime. And a huge chunk of the episode is devoted to just them being in the desert and, and then being rescued from the desert. That's it. It's probably worth noting if they had just freaking stayed at the village where they were to begin with, this would have never happened, probably. They might have been injured or caved in. That is possible. But, yeah. No. There is a reason I jumped over to the desert stuff, though, because the minor B-plot of the episode is the substantially more interesting one. And I'm going to shove my foot into my mouth as hard as I can talking about it. So, buckle in. The first thing that we see is something I love. Consequence. One of the biggest things I love about continuity is consequence of actions. Archer decided, on his, under his own volition, when he didn't have to, to stay behind and rescue those Sulaban, just those Sulaban from that one internment camp, right? He didn't try to, to stop the oppression against the Sulaban in general. He didn't try to arm the Sulaban to help each other. He just rescued those groups, but he went out of his way to do it. He could have just left. Remember, he was rescued relatively early on in the episode. He could have just beamed down. That would have been the end of that. But no, he deliberately wanted to say because his conscience told him it was the right thing to do. Now, no judgment. It's not my job. What it is my job to do is to point out that this is a logical consequence of that. We are now seeing stories told of the great Jonathan Archer and how he fights for the oppressed. Now, that's dangerous. We are lucky very, very lucky that Zabral, Mr. Clancy Brown, is as amiable and relatively good of a person as he is. Plenty of people who are far more desperate and dangerous and horrible could have picked up on this and said, aha, and pulled a TNG's The High Ground. It would have been, I mean, if you remember, in TNG's The High Ground, the reason they go after Crusher is because they recognize she's a doctor and she tries to help, so they take advantage of that and use her. So, now we have that consequence. And this is actually the first time consequence has really come into the show. I know you're going to bring up Shadows of Pajem, but i got to be honest. The destruction of the Sulaban, uh, wow, the um, Vulcan array didn't really have any consequence. Not really. I mean, it, it led to a small scuffle with T'Pol maybe leaving, and we're no longer going to do joint operations, but other than that, it's just been business as usual. Nothing changed. Even within the episode, the only thing it mattered for was that T'Pol had to be convinced not to go, and that's it. I suppose... Okay, fine. If you want to argue it, fine. I'll give it to you. I don't care. I don't think that counts. I don't. But I think this counts. Because what we have here is an oppressed people who used to be part of a caste system, who recently brokered a peace with other tribes who are not obeying or adhering to that peace, and now they have to deal with that. I really don't want to talk about this. Because this is a problem now, never mind historically. Remember I talked about the bureaucracy thing? Uh, what was that? That was um, the episode we're referencing. Uh, the uh, Detained, right? 
I talked about how, well, just go through the system is slanted against you. You remember that? What do you do when the system is slanted against you and you are being systemically oppressed? That's important. One or two or 20 people deciding to be dicks to you is different than an entire structure of societal existence which is designed to oppress you. That is systemic oppression. I'm, I'm probably not even doing a good job of explaining this here. What do you do about that? Do you um, go through the system? Right? That's, that's what you're supposed to do, right? That's, that's what a reasonable, civilized person would do. I've heard that argument in modern times. Now, referring to people who are now fighting against oppression, systemic oppression, who are actually looking at things and saying, well, why don't they just go through the proper channels? Without the understanding that the proper channels do not work. That's why it's called systemic oppression. Now, I am admittedly presuming when it comes to Mr. Zobral and his situation, but the episode didn't cast Clancy Brown on accident, I don't think. This is clearly someone who has been pushed over a line, but he's not to the point of actually being, you know, the guy from the high ground. He's not actually, <laughs> yet. He really only does the one thing wrong. He decides to lie to us in order to try and get us to come here so he can beg us for help. He begs us for help and weapons, but then he realizes, he, he reads the room. He sees what they're saying. He's like, okay, you're not going to give us weapons. That's okay, that's okay. Your tactical expertise, that's what I really need. Help me to figure out how to fight this war, please. We are losing. Because of the fact that we don't get involved in this fight, it is entirely likely that Zabral and his people do end up losing this fight. And this is there's another thing. So you're probably thinking, okay, well, what are you leading up to, Lore? If going through the system doesn't work, what else is there? Do you pick up and move? What if there's nowhere to move to? What if there's nowhere acceptable to move to? What if the social contract is broken? This is what leads people to violence. This is not the only thing that leads people to violence. But this is what leads reasonable, reasonable people to violence. People who have feel that the social contract of their government and their people has been violated, and in so doing they are no longer represented properly by the people who are in charge of them. Revolution and insurrection are words that kind of have some unpleasant connotations, and for good reason. I mean, most real-life revolutions were very, very bloody, very violent, very dark. You ever study the French Revolution? That was an unmitigated mess. And, God, it was a river of blood. But that's kind of the problem, isn't it? That's why things get really dirty. That's probably why this didn't get the focus it probably needed in this episode. Because, on the one hand, fighting against the monarchy in the French Revolution kind of makes a lot of sense. Especially given how badly things were being mismanaged at that point in time historically. Especially economically, which I can tell you about. So... We have a situation where the poor people are being horrifically abused and overtaxed because of mismanagement of resources. We appreciate that over here in the States, by the way. And then they decide to revolt, and then people are pushed to violence. Reasonable people are pushed to violence. But what about the people who aren't reasonable? That's when things get messy. Zabral, he's a decent man. 
I, I think he is a decent man. They call him a terrorist. He technically qualifies. But I would say he's a decent person who is simply doing what he feels is required in order to get his voice heard, in order to affect societal change. Now, I'm on his side. Let me go ahead and say that. But it's because of these exact and specific circumstances. I'm not in the side of terrorists all the time. I'm not in the side of the revolutionaries all the time. Okay? Don't put words in my mouth. But in this case, in this exact person with his exact scenario, I am on his side. But what happens when someone a lot less reasonable shows up? I supported the Krogan in getting rid of the genophage. You know why? Because of Rex. That was the deciding factor for me. More than anything else. All the other things. I spent, what was it, two or three weeks? I don't remember anymore. I've told this story before. I spent so long debating that. Rex was the deciding factor for me. Someone who was a decent man who I could trust to guide the ship to the point of not going overboard, not going too far, and not reaching into things that probably should not happen. But you see the problem, and as several people pointed out when I talked about that way back in the day, what happens when someone replaces Rex? Well, now we got a problem, don't we? The episode is interesting in the way that it actually makes the official deliberately unhelpful. But the episode still tries to mention that this is not a situation they should be involved in. Effectively, the episode is very harshly pushing against the idea of interventionism in favor of isolationism. That is what this episode is pushing. And I'm not saying I agree or disagree, only pointing out that that is clearly the message the episode is showing. We should not get involved. To uh, Paul and Hoshi have a brief discussion. Why the United States? Why the Vulcans reach out to the U.S.? Now, that worked out. I've used that argument before. What if the Vulcans reached out to Pakistan? What if they made an alignment with just one nation on a planet? This is an issue, and this is the kind of thing that is going to be an issue going forwards, especially this early on in galactic history, relatively speaking. The galactic community barely exists at this point. It is not unreasonable to think that most planets are still a multitudinous group of natures and cultures and ethnic groups and clans and whatever else, right? So what happens when you reach out to Pakistan and no one else? What happens if a Pakistani... I, I don't know why I keep going with Pakistan... <laughs> it's it's what I picked for the last episode, so I'm just running with it. Whatever. I, I just picked a random country. Um, what happens if a Pakistani official is out in a ship and says, Hey, come visit. So they come and visit, and now we have tacit approval of whatever they're doing. Which may be nothing. Even in a situation where Pakistan is not actively at war with uh, another random nation, Algeria. And yet Algeria is now looking at Pakistan like, Wait a minute. They've got aliens now. Are they making trade agreements? Mutual defense pacts? We need to get out on this. If we can't get in on this, we need to stop them from getting in on this. Oh my god, what do we do? Right? Hell, I wrote an entire story in my own setting, The Extent, about that. I call it the Elven Civil War. Civil War. And it's about exactly this. A intergalactic community uh, reached out to the planet where the elves are from, and they found that the elves were not united, and so war happened. That's the super summary of the story. 
That'll be 30 bucks, please. No, I'm, I'm kidding, I'm kidding. But this is an incredibly complex topic with no good answer. Unfortunately, like I said, the episode seems to slant heavily on the nip, 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 nip uh, approach. Like I said, isolationism, trying to avoid dealing with anything. Which leads me to something interesting. To Paul says that decisions should be left to governments, not captains. I'm not actually 100% sure I agree with that. Hear me out for a second, okay? Now, first of all, that statement has a lot more validity if the governments are making decisions, which they're not. You'll notice every single time one of these little internecine political affairs comes up, it's the people on the ground, so to speak, Archer and the crew, who actually decide what's happening and how to deal with it. Now, her statement about that would have a lot more weight if the writers kept having things where he'd call in to Starfleet every single time they encounter someone new, and then Starfleet makes a call. Now, they don't because that's not good television, but you can see how that completely hampers their point. The government should be making a decision, so why aren't they? Are you telling me that Archer is just making decisions completely independent of EarthGov, <laughs> wrong setting, of Starfleet, and only informing them of what he did after the fact? Which leads me to an interesting question. What is Archer's official capacity as a representative of the government of Earth? Which, to my knowledge, doesn't even actually officially exist. Like, if I'm not mistaken, Starfleet is effectively a form of NATO right now, in, in terms of structure. Not actually a unified Earth star organization. I could be wrong about that. I'm not actually 100% sure, to be completely blunt. But this is why I say I'm not sure I completely agree. This is a unique point in Star Trek history. And I think captains of starships, of major starships, of which there are exactly one in Starfleet right now, the NX-01, I think that person should be officially ratified as effectively an official of the state. Someone who does have the authority to be a government and make decisions about how the Earth, Gov, and, damn it, about how Starfleet, keep stuttering today, I'm sorry, blah, blah, about how Starfleet interacts with other cultures they interact with. Because, if Forrest even mentions this, you're the one on the ground, you're the one who's going to make the decision here. And I'm going to back your call. He says that a few episodes ago. I said that a few episodes ago. Obviously, that shouldn't probably be true by the time, say, Picard rolls around. That is to say, TNG. But in Picard's era, every time he interacts with anything, it's, it's because he's like the third or fourth ship to do so. These people are already people who know about space travelers and know about the Federation. And very rarely is that an exception. Most of their exploring, then, has to do with people who don't even know they exist, and thus this isn't even an equation. And if they did, he could just call home within a second. Admiral, yep, I'm here. Yep, hey, how, how's it going? We found a planet. Here's my information on it. Oh, yes, okay, here's the decision. We'll, we'll go through the council. Got it. Bleep. But instead, what we have here, I mean, you could argue Archer could do the same thing, but this really is a different era, because there's no Federation there's barely a Starfleet. So who makes these kind of judgment calls? Again, you can, you can disagree with me on this if you will. I, I fully understand that, but I feel like in governmental structure, a captain of a major ship 
one of three by the end of this show's run, should be the kind of person who is effectively a governor, right? Or, or even a representative, someone who is uh, in a position of substantial enough power to make state decisions. I, I mean, granted, I suppose I'm presuming because Archer does that. Hell, Kirk did that. I don't know. A lot to think about, and as ever, I am very, very curious about your thoughts on this one. Naturally, this is kind of... The reason this is also interesting to me, if I can add one last point here, that would mean whoever that captain is is someone you really have to ratify, because you don't just need someone who's going to be a good commander, who's charismatic enough to keep a crew together, and blah, blah, blah. But you need someone who's going to represent Earth interests, because now they're acting on an official capacity on behalf of EarthGov. No, no pun intended this time. And if that's true, and if that's actually part of canon, well, that explains why Archer is the captain, doesn't it? Because while he's a crap captain, he does represent Earth interests. In specific, he represents Earth interests, not Vulcan interests. And we know that this is a political ploy to begin with. It always was. Food for thought. Either way, I hope you've enjoyed my thoughts. Next week, we'll finally get to Ryza... And we'll talk about this when we get there. See you around, guys.